been doing a little independent research in order to try to figure out how our culture has shifted over the last 50 to 75 years and how that has changed the complex relationship between Christianity and our broader society. So as one little data point, I began listening to some of the messages that Billy Graham delivered here in New York City at Madison Square Garden in 1957. He began holding what he called his New York Crusade on May 15, 1957. And these meetings lasted for an unprecedented 16 weeks. And over that 16-week period, 2.4 million people showed up to hear Graham. Now, that in itself shows you how much the world has changed. It's hard to imagine packing out Madison Square Garden and seeing so many New Yorkers so showing such sustained interest in Christianity over such a prolonged period of time. Clearly, we live in a very different world. And yet, at the same time, some things never change. So in one of these messages, Billy Graham tells this little story. He says, according to the Bible, when you become a Christian, you start out as a tiny little baby, not a full-grown adult. And then he uses this analogy. He says that when his son was born, one of the first words out of his mouth was dada. At least that's what they thought he was saying. That's what others suggested he was saying. Dada. And Graham and his wife were thrilled to death because their son had learned to talk. He says, but imagine if 20 years later my son was walking around and all he knew how to say was Dada. Dada. Well, you would know that something's wrong. And Graham suggests that this is the tragedy of the church in America. That many of us call ourselves Christians, but we haven't grown up a bit. And he says you could go to a Bible study or a prayer meeting and people might share a Bible verse and somebody shares John 3.16 and then you respond by saying, oh, she took my verse because that's the only one you do. And like Graham, I would say that some things haven't changed. I too am concerned about the superficiality and the lack of depth within the broader church today. And that's one of the reasons why we are engaging in a series focused on the distinguishing marks of an authentic follower of Jesus. The whole point of being born is to grow up you're not supposed to remain a tiny little baby forever. And so what we have been exploring is how do we grow? How do we grow as disciples, meaning students or apprentices of the life of Jesus? And today I'd like us to focus on maturity as a distinguishing mark of an authentic follower of Christ. And we'll do so by focusing on a passage from Colossians chapter 1, verses 25 through 29. And here in this passage... The Apostle Paul lays out for us the goal, the message, and the means to grow up into maturity. So if you'd like, let me encourage you to open a Bible to Colossians chapter 1. The passage is printed in the order of worship. It can also be found on page 983 of the Pew Bible. I'll be reading Colossians chapter 1, verses 25 through 29. I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. 
To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is God's word. It's trustworthy and it's true and it's given to us in love. Well, if I were to ask you, what is the purpose of your life? What does God want? What would you say? You might respond by saying to be successful, to be happy and fulfilled, to love and serve others, to make the world a better place. Those are all good things. But I think we find a very different answer and a very different perspective when we turn to the scriptures. According to the scriptures, the ultimate goal of our lives is to become like Jesus. That's the whole point. The whole point of our lives is to become like Jesus. That is and always has been and always will be the point in the past, the present, and the future. Consider what the Apostle Paul has to say about God's past purpose in Romans 8, 29. He says God has predestined his people. He has predestined his people to be conformed to the image of his son. Every human being, without exception, is created in the image of God. But as a result of humanity's spiritual rebellion and failure, that image has not been lost, but it has been tarnished. The image of God has not been erased, but it has been effaced. And God's eternal purpose from before the beginning of time is to renew God's image in us through Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God and who is the exact imprint of his nature. So God's eternal purpose from before the beginning of time was to conform you to the image of his son. But that's not only his past purpose, it's also a present reality. Consider what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. He says, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. He says that as we behold the glory of the Lord revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, we are being transformed into the same image progressively over time from one degree of glory to another. That's happening now. That is God's present work in your life now. And that's not just the whole point of the past and the present. It's also the future promise. So consider 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. John writes, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's an amazing statement. If we have put our trust in Jesus, we are God's children. But what we will become, what we will be like, is a mystery still to us. We do not know. But what we can count on is this, that when Jesus returns to make all things new, when we finally see him face to face, the most surprising thing that we'll discover is that we've become like him. We will be like him when we see him as he truly is. So this is the whole point of our lives, past, present, and future. It is to become like Jesus, to be transformed into his image and likeness. That's the goal, to become like Christ. And the Apostle Paul understood that. This became the guiding purpose of his life as well as of his ministry. Shortly after Paul established a church in the region of Galatia, 
he receives the depressing news that many of these fledgling Christians have turned away from the gospel that he had imparted to them. And he, he's stunned. He's shocked. He can't believe that they would so quickly desert the Jesus that he had presented to them. And so he writes the letter to the Galatians. He dashes off this letter in order to set them back on the right path. And in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, he says, I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ be formed in you. What an image. I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Now, I don't know if you've ever given birth to a child or if you've witnessed someone else do it, especially without anesthetics or an epidural, which would have been the norm in Paul's day. But Paul's saying, that's how he feels. He feels like he's suffering the pains of labor, like he is giving birth because he is striving, striving to see the people that God has entrusted to him formed into the image of Jesus. So I wonder if you could say the same thing. Is the supreme passion of your life to become more and more like Jesus? And that's what brings me to the passage that is before us today from the letter to the Colossians. Now, Paul never visited the city of Colossae, but in this letter, he sums up the, the whole goal of his entire life and ministry in verse 28. What's the goal? To present everyone mature in Christ. To present everyone mature in Christ. Maturity. That's the goal. And this is for everyone. It's not reserved for the select few. There is no spiritual elite within the Christian church. This is God's goal and intention for everyone, and that includes you. We're called to maturity. And the Greek word that Paul uses here is teleos. Sometimes it could be translated as perfect, whole, intact, complete. Rarely, if ever, though, is this word used to describe perfection in an absolute sense. And therefore, maturity is probably the way to go. But what kind of maturity does Paul have in mind? There's different ways of being mature. You could be mature physically, meaning that you're healthy, you've got a well-developed body. You could be mature intellectually, meaning that you've got a well-trained mind. You could be mature emotionally, meaning that you've got a balanced personality, you know how to regulate your emotions. You could be mature morally, you can discern between good and evil, right and wrong. Or you could be mature interpersonally, meaning that you know how to establish relationships and you know how to follow through on your commitments and responsibilities. But what kind of maturity does Paul have in mind? Well, he says that his goal is to present everyone mature in Christ. That's the kind of maturity he's talking about, to be mature in Christ. Now, here's something interesting. Neither Jesus nor Paul ever used the word Christian. They never used the word Christian to describe the followers of Jesus. Jesus' preferred term to describe those who followed him was disciples. And the primary way in which Paul describes the followers of Jesus is to say that we are those in Christ. The followers of Jesus are those who are in Christ. And he uses this expression, in Christ, in the Lord, in him, 
164 times in his letters alone. The word Christian only appears three times in the whole New Testament. So what does this mean? He's telling us that to be in Christ is the most basic and most central way to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Now, when he says that we are in Christ, he's not suggesting that we are inside Jesus, like you might put tools inside a toolbox or clothes inside a dresser. Rather, he's saying to be in Christ means that you are united to Jesus in the same way that branches are in a vine or your arms and legs are in your body. To be in Christ means that you are personally, vitally, organically connected to him. And if you are in Christ, then everything that is true of Jesus becomes true of you. If you are in Jesus, then everything that is true of Jesus becomes true of you. And that's why Paul will write this later in this same letter to the Colossians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, do you hear what he's saying? If Jesus died on the cross in your place and was raised to new life and will appear again in glory, then what is true of him is now true of you. You have already died to your old life. You have already been raised to new life in him and you will appear with him in glory. It is as good as done. You can count on it. You can bank your life on it. This is what it means to be united to him. And so Paul says, set your mind on these things. Reflect on it. Take it deep into your heart and into your life. And live out this reality. See, in other words, the task is not to try to become something that you're not. Rather, Paul is telling you, be who you already are. Be who you already are. Set your mind on this truth. Live out this new reality that you've already received in Jesus. So to be mature... And your relationship to Jesus means that because you are united to him, Jesus becomes the basis of all of your thinking, all of your acting, and all of your relating in the world. So if that's the goal we're aiming at, to be mature in Christ, how does this happen? Well, you cannot be personally, vitally, organically united to Jesus without a fresh full, clear, true picture, vision of who he is. And that is why Paul says, you only get that through the proclamation of Jesus. And so in verse 28, he says, him we proclaim, Jesus we proclaim. That's the way in which you grow up into maturity. You need to have a fresh, clear, full, true vision of Jesus. And that comes through the proclamation of the word. The word proclaim here is a weighty word in the scriptures. It's an almost technical word for the preaching, the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. And in this short little passage, Paul has such a beautiful way of describing this gospel message. And he describes it in a number of different ways. First of all, he puts it quite simply in verse 25. He just calls it the word of God. 
He says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Now notice that Paul did not tap himself for this task, nor did he invent this message. Both his mission and his message were imparted to him from God. And that same message is now contained for us in the scriptures. And even though this message of Jesus has been communicated to us through human authors, it is ultimately the word of God. It is God's word to us, and we receive it as such. What the scripture says, God says. But if we want to have that fresh, clear, full, true vision of who Jesus is, then we must go to the scriptures. You could say that the Bible is the Father's portrait of the Son painted by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is full of Christ. It is a book of Christ. The whole purpose of the scriptures is to show you Jesus so that you might be conformed into his image. So the first thing that Paul tells us is that the gospel is the word of God, but then secondly, he refers to it as the mystery. And I love this. He says this is the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. And he goes on to say in verse 27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. So what is the mystery? When Paul uses this word mystery, he's not talking about something that is inexplicable or unsolvable, but rather something that is unknown and undiscoverable until it is revealed to us. So the mystery is not something inexplicable or unsolvable. Rather, the mystery is something unknown and undiscoverable until it is revealed to us. And so what is this secret plan that no one could have ever guessed that has now been revealed? Well, God's secret plan was to reconcile us in relationship to himself, to rescue the whole world, and to usher in the new creation through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. No one saw that coming. That is God's mystery, his secret plan. And now the secret's out. It's an open secret. And now that the secret is out, Paul wants absolutely everyone to hear it, to get in on it, to experience its benefits, because that is what makes this mystery so astonishing and so amazing. It is for everyone. Now look, in our world today, we have so many social divisions, many of which are incredibly intense. We can think of the divisions between rich and poor, black and white, left and right. And yet, as intense as these social divisions may be, they pale in comparison to the hostility that existed between Jews and Gentiles in the ancient world. And yet part of what Paul is telling us here is that what makes God's plan so shocking is not only that he has extended his love and his favor to the Gentiles, but he has brought Jews and Gentiles into one family. He's incorporated them fully into the one family of God, which many would have assumed was reserved for Israel alone. And here's the point. If God can bring Jews and Gentiles together into the one family of God, well, then he can break down any social barrier in our world today in order to make us one in Christ. So this is the mystery that was hidden for ages and generations, but which has now been revealed to us through Jesus. And then finally, 
Paul will reveal in verse 27 the very heart of this mystery. You know what the heart of it is? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. It would be one thing to have Jesus beside you at each and every moment of your life. That would be an incredible privilege. The only thing that would be better than that, than having Jesus beside you, would be to have Jesus within you at each and every moment of your life. And that is what God has promised. When you put your faith in Jesus, Jesus comes and dwells within your heart through his spirit. That's the mystery. Hidden for ages, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that is what gives you absolute confidence that God will finish the work that he begins in you. He will finish the work of transforming you into the image of his son because it doesn't ride on you. It doesn't depend on you. It's not about you. It's about his work in you. Christ in you is the hope of glory. This hope is not some idle wish. It's not a matter of vain speculation. This is a settled conviction. This will happen. You will experience God's glory because Christ is in you. That is rock-bottom reality for the Christian. If only we could take that into our hearts and minds and live in light of that truth. But if that is the goal, to be mature in Christ, and if this is the message that we need to hear, the word of God, the mystery hidden for ages, Christ in you, the hope of glory, then what is the means by which we grow up? Obviously, Paul understands that it's possible to put your faith in Jesus. It's possible to be in Christ and yet remain immature because you fail to know, to understand, to appreciate who you really are and what new possibilities and responsibilities have been set before you as one united to Jesus. And that's at least one very good reason why we need pastors, why we need teachers, why we need friends. Like the Apostle Paul, people who are filled with boundless energy to take the truth of the gospel and to apply it to our hearts and to the real-life situations in which we find ourselves. We need those kinds of relationships in our lives, and that will involve both correction and instruction. Do you notice what Paul says here? Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. To grow up into maturity involves both negative correction on the one hand and positive instruction on the other. Many of us would probably prefer to never have to say anything negative. We don't want to have to rule anything out of bounds. We'd rather focus on the positives and just tell people that everything they're doing and saying and thinking is okay. But it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way in the natural life. It doesn't work that way in the spiritual life. No, we need both warning and teaching. I mean, imagine if you never warned a child. Imagine if you sought only to affirm that child, but never to correct. What would happen to a kid if they never heard the word no? Psychologists will tell you if a child never hears the word no, they'll never learn how to cope with discomfort or disappointment. If a child never hears the word no, they'll never learn to wait, to be patient, 
if a child never hears the word no, they'll never be able to set limits or boundaries for him or herself. In other words, if you never hear the word no, you'll never figure out how to live in the real world. And so that's what Paul's talking to us talking to us about. He wants us to grow up into maturity so that we know how to live out our true identity as Jesus's followers. And that's why Paul just can't stop talking about Jesus. Him we proclaim. Him we proclaim. We need to continually think through who Jesus is and what he has done for us by his grace in order to become mature. We have to take the truths of the gospel, think about them, reflect on them, pray over them, meditate over them until they ignite our hearts, until these truths become experientially real to us and then they transform us from the inside out. And that's why Paul says in chapter three, verse two, set your mind on things above. He's not telling you to live with your head in the clouds, detached from all reality but rather to get in touch with true reality. Set your mind on things above. See things the way that they really are. Develop a new mindset, which comes from knowing that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. And just think of the implications of this for your life if you were to actually do that. Well, let me quickly offer a a few suggestions of what might happen if you really took it to heart that you are in Christ and Christ is in you, It will lead to new love, new wisdom, and new power. See, first of all, it'll lead to new love. When my son Luke was three years old, we were trying to explain to him that when you put your faith in Jesus, Jesus comes and dwells within you. He lives in your heart through his Holy Spirit. And we were trying to explain the role of the Spirit. We said that the the primary purpose, the, the main job of the Holy Spirit is to remind you of how much Jesus loves you. That's the Spirit's job. Is to assure you that God loves you because he loves you because he loves you. That's all the Spirit does, is tell you over and over again, Jesus loves you. And upon hearing this, three-year-old Luke cocks his head and he tries to stick his ear to his heart. And then all of a sudden his face lights up and he says, I can hear him. And I hope he never stops being able to hear him. And I hope you can hear him. This is what we celebrate on Pentecost. The Spirit has been poured out into our hearts through God's love for us. And the Spirit's job is to just flood, to inundate our hearts with the knowledge of his love to assure us that we really are God's child. Despite who we are, what we've ever done, ever will do. And there's nothing that we can ever do to make God love us more. There's nothing we could ever do to make him love us less. He loves us perfectly, completely, infinitely. So do you hear him assuring you of Jesus' love? If you do, it'll transform the whole way in which you understand your identity in Jesus. And it challenges both a traditional and a modern approach to identity formation. In a traditional culture, your identity is determined for you by your family, your station in life, your people, your place of birth. And on the one hand, that could conceivably ground you and be ennobling, but it could also oppress you and become 
stifling. In a modern culture, we're told that we must create an identity for ourselves in order to be our authentic self. And choosing your own identity can be quite free because you are not only permitted, but you're actually encouraged to pursue your own dreams. But there is a, there's a dark side to choosing your own identity as well. Because if you are choosing who you are, well, that could lead to paralysis because there's too many options. It can also lead to anxiety because there's too much pressure to perform. Or it can lead to discontent because there's too many unmet expectations. But by contrast, if you are in Christ and Christ in you, well, then your identity is not determined by your family or your socioeconomic background or your race or your ethnicity or your class or your gender or your nationality, nor is it a construction of your own making based on your ever-shifting preferences and choices and affiliations and associations with other people or your accomplishments in life. No, rather your identity is rooted in Christ. It's rooted in Christ. It's fixed. It can't change. And that's how you know who you are. No matter what life throws at you, that's how you know that you are significant and secure. That's how you know that you are okay, that you'll be safe, and that your life counts for something. And that is how you know how to live in the world. So rather than creating an identity by trying to find yourself, you actually discover your true identity by being found in Christ. But if you know that you are in Christ and Christ is in you, it not only leads to new love, but also new wisdom. You're no longer solely dependent upon your own insight or intuition or understanding, because now the very same spirit that inspired the scriptures is the spirit alive, active, operative in your life to teach you all things that Jesus has instructed us. And through the spirit, we actually have the mind of Christ, Paul says. We have the mind of Christ. We can know his thoughts, his intentions, his goals, his values, his standards. And therefore, we not only know our identity, but also our destiny. We know who we are and where we are headed. And that provides us with a lens through which we can interpret everything that happens to us in life. And that is what we need. Because what fundamentally shapes you is not what happens to you in life, but rather how you interpret what happens to you in life and how you respond to it. And you see, if you have the spirit, you have new wisdom, you have a new lens through which you interpret your present circumstances, your past life, and your future destiny. You interpret it all through the lens of Jesus. And that's what changes everything. But then finally, we receive not only new love and new wisdom, but new power. If you are in Christ and Christ is in you, then the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work within you. Is that not amazing? God has more power in his little finger than all the nuclear reactors in the world. He has more power in his pinky than in the heart of the sun. That is the power by which he raised Jesus from the dead. Who could think of such a thing? That power is in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now you have the ability not just to know or to desire God's will, but to do it. You've got the ability to do it. 
And therefore, you need not be helplessly stuck in destructive, life-defeating patterns of sin. But rather, the Holy Spirit enables you to increasingly experience and to live consistently with the new status that you have received in Jesus. To know that you are in Christ and Christ is in you is the secret, it is the key to living the Christian life. So remember that when Paul calls you to grow up and to be mature, he's not asking you to try to become something that you're not, but rather to be who you already are as a result of his grace. Be who you already are. Take these truths into your heart and into your life. Live them now. You're not supposed to remain a tiny little baby forever. The whole point of being born is to grow up. And that's going to require work. Look at Paul. He said he, he toils and he struggles. And yet he does it all with the power that God is energetically instilled within him. So you're never alone. If you're in Christ and Christ is in you, it's not up to you. It's not up to your power. It's not up to your strength. It is all a matter of relying on the, the strength which he instills within you. So now is the time to grow up, to be mature in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're all very cognizant of the superficiality and the lack of depth within the broader church today. But we pray that you would give us the grace to grow up. We know that we're not supposed to remain tiny little babies forever, but we are called to become mature in Christ. And so help us to know that if we have put our trust in Jesus, we are in Christ, and Christ is in us, and that is the hope of glory. Help us to cling to that hope as rock-bottom reality for our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.